Welcome to the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, Diane Hudock, where we have fun talking about the phenomenal and the fascinating. From angels to energy healing, from mystical places to mystical teachings, this is a place where we nerd out on the science of the soul. Welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Geek Out Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Diane Hudock. And my guest today is Dr. Mariam Teitelbaum. She is the author of the comprehensive book, Healing the Thyroid with Ayurveda, Natural Treatments for Hashimoto's, Hypothyroidism, and Hyperthyroidism. Dr. Marianne graduated summa cum laude from Palmer College of Chiropractic in 1984. She has studied with several Ayurvedic doctors, including Stuart Rothenberg, MD, and the esteemed Vidya Rama Kant Mishra for 17 years. She's also the recipient of the Prana Ushudi Award in 2013. She lectures and writes extensively about Ayurvedic treatments for all diseases, and she has a thriving private practice in or outside of Philadelphia. In this episode today, we go deep on the issue of autoimmunity, on the issue of thyroid disease, and just why so many people, one in three Americans, in fact, have thyroid issues today or autoimmunity, and how overall health is within everyone's reach when we offer the right tools and approaches for reversing disease. We go into a depth of topics such as the stages of disease, according to Ayurveda, the relationship between the gallbladder and the liver and the thyroid, the issue with synthetic K2, which many doctors espouse is wonderful, the miracle of clarified butter, the connection of light on the endocrine system and circadian rhythm, a deeper look at melatonin, the three parts of the immune system, which are critical for regulation, mitochondrial dysfunction, neurotoxins, and autoimmunity, and so much more. This is a hopeful episode for all who are looking to heal their bodies and bring themselves back to vital wellness. As always, I hope that it serves you well. Dr. Marian Teitelbaum, thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to not only learn from you directly more about how we can heal ourselves and especially the thyroid, which is a subject we'll be going into today, but also more on simply the healing through Ayurveda and why that is such a potent inroad to um, wellness. So thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So before we go into Ayurveda and all that is covered so comprehensively in your amazing book, Healing the Thyroid with Ayurveda, I'm just curious if you could go into your history just a bit and share your background leading up to your mentor in Ayurvedic medicine, Dr. And I'm going to forgive me, butcher his name, but Dr. Vidya Ramakant Mishra. Um, if you could take us through a, what led you to him, what led you to Ayurveda and, and what made Dr. Mishra such an exceptional doctor? Okay. So um, in the beginning, when I was younger, I always assumed that if one got sick, they could go see a doctor and they would help them. 
but I learned otherwise. <laughs> and maybe it was a good thing because the ancient textbooks of Ayurveda, the Shastras say that many of the healers themselves would have gotten sick. And in so doing, they learned the correct way to heal things. So when I was younger, I always, um, you know, I grew up on the standard American diet and my mother probably ate terrible things and smoked cigarettes when she was pregnant. And she listened to the doctors who told her, you don't need to breastfeed, just give formulas. And you don't even need to make baby food, just give them out of a jar and, um, and on and on like that. And then the doctor said, well, you don't need to eat butter, use margarine, it's so much better, it won't clog your arteries. And so little by little, I got sicker and sicker as I was growing up from not being raised correctly um, in a natural way. So by the time I was a teenager, I was very, I could hardly get out of bed, I was so tired. So I asked my mother to take me to some doctors and she would, and they would tell her that there was nothing wrong because they would just do blood work or a physical. They're always looking for diseases. And as long as you don't have a disease, then they think you're okay because they're basically trained to diagnose and treat disease. But I never felt well, I had no energy and I pretty much laid in bed for about four years. Wow. So she would take me and they would say, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong. So I said, why don't you take me to a more fancy doctor, like an internist where they can check all my organs and glands because I know something's not right. And so she did that and they said, well, um, you know, she probably needs a psychiatrist. And my mother said, that, that's odd because I have four kids and she's my most stable one. That's what I remember her saying that. And I was always real happy. And we had a happy household growing up and we loved our parents. So there were no problems there. So she took me to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist said, well, do you get along with your siblings? And I said, yeah, I was 16 at the time. And he said, well, um, how about your parents? I said, oh yeah, I love them. We have no generation gap. You know, my father had a woodworking uh, woodwork shop in the basement and my brothers learned how to build and it was just lots of fun. In fact, all the kids came to our house because that was the place to be. So they said, well, he said, maybe, um, is it your boyfriend? I said, I, I don't have a boyfriend. And he said, now we figured out what's wrong with her. She doesn't have a boyfriend. Um, she's depressed. So I remember walking out that day and I remember looking up in the sun and I'll never forget that day. It was a turning point in my life. And I said to my mother, I think I'm done and I'm not going back anymore to doctors because I could see that they weren't finding my imbalances, but I didn't at that time, maybe we were talking the 1960s, they didn't have holistic medicine. So I had to suffer for many years with my health, not being healthy. But then as I learned how to eat healthy and then I learned Ayurveda, I regained my health. Hmm. So uh, then I was really fortunate. I started uh, learning things like meditation and studying Far Eastern thought. And it was through that that I learned about uh, Ayurveda. And then the first wave of Ayurvedic physicians came to America and I studied with them. And then at some point my teacher came and I studied with him, not just study, but I sat with him as we saw patients together for 17 years. And I learned a lot. And the knowledge that he gave to me was so profound that that's what I'll be writing about in these books. The first one of which is this thyroid book. Hmm. Beautiful. Mm. Well, this is a loaded question, but since we're talking about thyroid and autoimmune disease in this particular episode, which has, is just running rampant <clears throat> in society, it begs the question, why do so many people have thyroid disease? 
The reason is that the thyroid is a very delicate little gland, almost like a very delicate little princess. That's what I call her. Mm-hmm. And the thyroid is the only gland whose hormones affect every cell in your body. But in reverse, anything that's off in the body affects the thyroid. And that's what I was showing in my book. The thyroid is more the victim and it's more the symptom of all these other things. So once you have to take each person individually and see, and it's usually more than one reason, what are the causes of their weak thyroid? Take away those things, fix them, and then strengthen the thyroid and it perks right back up. But when you start to see what the causes of a weak thyroid are, they're rampant in our society. So you could see why so many people have weakness. Hmm. Can you, have you seen people that have been on thyroid medicine for many, many years? And if you look at their thyroid under an ultrasound, it looks like the craters of the moon because it's been eaten away so much. Can they return to full function? One of the big goals in Ayurveda is to try to uh, zoom in on a person's health in the early stages of a disease process. So in the book, I talk about, um, there's actually nine stages we go through, but basically six stages. Uh, So as the person's um, going through life, uh, in the first two stages of these imbalances, there might not be any symptoms, but it could be, let's use the thyroid as an example. It could be getting a little weaker. Uh, Then in the third and fourth stage, you could have symptoms. Maybe your hair is falling out, you're gaining weight, you're tired and depressed. Um, but it won't show up on blood work yet. That's why so many people do have a weak thyroid, but it doesn't always show up. It's not till the fifth and sixth stage you develop a pathology where Mm -hmm. it's diseased enough, it'll show up on blood work. So the goal of Ayurveda is to always pick these things up in the early stages and reverse them so they don't get to that fifth and sixth stage and deteriorate. So there's no guarantee as we go down some, you know, disease process path, that we can always return that to normal. If there's been a lot of damage done, you might not be able to fix it per se. Maybe you could have the person take less medicine or maybe you could get them off, we don't know. It's always worth a try. But the real issue is that we can't look at this like the person has a thyroid problem. We have to scrap that line of thinking and that's true for every disease. We can't think that the person has this thing called rheumatoid arthritis or this thing called ulcerative colitis. We have to stop thinking like that. But what we, the way we have to look at it is what are all the things that are weakening this gland and let me fix those because if I don't, those same things can affect something else. So let's say it's too late for the thyroid, which most of the time it's not, by the way. We help a lot of patients either get off their medicine or some people are on medicine. They still have so many symptoms. And then when we fix the thyroid, all the reasons why it's weak, they, they feel so much better. So, so that's what we have to look at, uh, whether we're looking at these things. For example, one of the big causes that we see of the thyroid being weak, in this country, they put fluoride in the drinking water, which fluoride is a poison, and it's especially poisonous to the thyroid gland. So many people have fluoride So it's the thyroid can't work with the fluoride on it. And so what we have to do is pull the fluoride off of it and strengthen it back up. So let's say you, your thyroid hormones are weak and you go to a doctor and they give you thyroid hormones because yours are too low in the blood work, but no one's looking at the fluoride issue. See what I'm saying? 
Yes. So you're taking this medicine and your thyroid's continually being poisoned. So let's say it does get beyond the point where maybe it is scarred or who knows what, but that same fluoride could calcify your pineal gland and affect your melatonin or it could affect your bones. So we need to get the fluoride out whether or not it's too late to save the thyroid, which again, it's usually not. See what I'm saying? So we have to stop thinking like, like we have separate parts in the body. They're yeah. all interconnected. So if the thyroid's weak, it means there's a whole bunch of other things weak that are pulling it down. See? Yeah. hundred percent. How do you test Ayurvedically if someone has fluoride in their thyroid or just first in their thyroid, second in their system or their pineal gland, is it through pulse? Um, you, there are certain things you can feel in the pulse. The other thing is I've also learned another technique in chiropractic college called applied kinesiology where oh. we can tell that's very easy for me to test. The other thing is that the ancient doctor said, even if you didn't know how to take a person's pulse, just ask them a lot of leading questions. So someone who tells me they're drinking fluoridated water for the last 10 years, or they grew up drinking it, there's no way they can't be affected by it. See what I'm saying? So we just go ahead and use the remedy to pull the fluoride out. And if worse came to worse and they didn't need it, it would be like nourishing an area that doesn't need to be nourished because mm -hmm. our supplements are based on cilantro to pull out the, the uh, fluoride. So it's not going to hurt them to have some cilantro in their system. See what I'm saying? hundred percent. Yeah. 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 You mentioned something that really stru uh, stuck with me. Um, where you mention, you talk about nutraceuticals, vitamins, tr things like that. And I don't know anybody that doesn't take at least one vitamin. <laughs> and yeah. I know I take many. <clears throat> and you make a really strong argument where you say that everything that goes in the mouth essentially has to get digested through the liver. Mm -hmm. And that leads me to the question of, um, the relationship that you found between the thyroid and the gallbladder and, and also the thyroid, I would say in the liver, why that matters? Because I think, well, if you're taking pharmaceuticals that has to get broken down by the, by the liver, the, th the gallbladder is right below the liver. So they kind of work in tandem in some regard. I'd love for you to go into how the liver and the gallbladder are influenced or influence the thyroid for that matter. When you read my book on the thyroid, you'll yeah. notice that I'm talking about everything. I'm yeah. talking about the microbiome in the gut because you make the thyroid hormones. They just sit there. They don't do anything and they can't do anything until they get to the inside of your cell. So in order for that to happen, the friendly bacteria in the gut have to activate them to bring them in and the liver has to process them to bring them in. Then it has its effect. So here I start out the book talking about the friendly bacteria in the gut. They could be depleted by birth control pills, if you ever took some, or antibiotics, flu shots, any vaccines, acid reflux medicines. So now if you've had a history of those and who doesn't, we have to fix the gut so that the thyroid can work better. Now take the liver. Everything you swallow, the liver has to process. In America, what has happened Modern medicine has taken the herbs and said, you know, there's this active ingredient in the herbs. Why don't we isolate that out? And then we can make it in a higher dose in a lab and um, it'll have a stronger effect, which it does. But then it also has side effects and it's toxic to the liver and kidneys. Wow. So then we don't have a tradition of holistic medicine in the United States because we're a new country. 
We haven't discovered our herbs yet. We've only been here about 250 years. If you contrast that with India, they've been there 10,000 years and their tradition of holistic medicine, Ayurveda is 5,000 years old. See what mm. I'm saying? So it takes several thousand years to get to know your herbs and, and then develop this. So we're in the very early stages. So basically with any new discipline, you're gonna do everything wrong. So, mm. so what we're saying is we don't like that idea of for our medicine, all we have are these toxic pharmaceuticals. Let's do something more natural, but mm, we don't know our herbs, but you know, food has these things called vitamins and amino acids and L-tyrosine and glutathione. We can isolate it out of the food and make it in a lab at a much higher dose. So you see the mistake they're making. They're doing the same thing that modern medicine did with the pharmaceuticals that we're trying to get away from. That's one thing. The other thing is the ancient doctors of India said that we need to understand what the word prana means. Prana is the vibration from the sun and the moon hitting the food and the herbs and the, you know all the food that we eat, water that, that's growing out in the fields, the water that's flowing down the mountain streams. It gets absorbed in the food and water and herbs so that when we take it into our body, that vibration is what gives ourselves their intelligence to perform all their functions. So if you make something synthetic in a lab, it's devoid of the pranic energy, there's no intelligence there, and then something will go awry in the body, something. You know, I just made a video on vitamin K2. Mm. Uh, it, it was just released this week. Every week I make a new video and it's, pro, it's um, produced on uh, the, uh, Facebook and it's also on my website. So we could take this one video that I made and extrapolate it to all vitamins. So what I said is that vitamin K2 is a vitamin that whatever calcium you have in your body, it directs it. Like you're not gonna go in the joints and the bloodstream and calcify the arteries. You are gonna come over here. I'm gonna deposit the calcium in the bones and teeth where it belongs. So vitamin K2 is always standing there, ushering the calcium where it belongs. So now they're putting synthetic vitamin K2 in the vitamin D supplements because vitamin D helps the absorption of calcium. Hmm. Now, when you examine it under a microscope, what you'll see is that the vitamin K2 they're using is an isomer, it's called MK7. This is rejected by the placenta. The body's smart, it's wise, and it knows we do not want this entering the baby, so it pushes it away wow. because it doesn't have an effect. But MK4 is found in food. That's what the body wants. So MK4, it's not found too much in food, but it is found in milk. And then if you concentrate the milk and you make butter, it's more in there. But the ancient doctors of India were so wise without microscopes, they said, yeah, you could eat butter, but we're gonna tell you something that's better. If you clarify the butter, you're gonna concentrate it more. And now when they test it, it has a ton of vitamin K2 in there. See what I'm yeah. saying? And it's the MK4. So if we extrapolate that to all vitamins, I'm sure if we see on a deeper level, the body doesn't like the synthetic one. It's, it can have some effect and it might look good in the blood work, but the body doesn't, it's not what we need. So, and yeah, this, some people like Dr. Royal Lee, he, he made a vitamin company called Standard Process Labs in the 1930s. Several doctors back then said, one thing I can tell you, we cannot play God. As much as we think we can, we cannot make these vitamins and it's never gonna be the same as if it occurred in nature. So that's a real big deal in my book. 
that I talk about that because yeah. all people are doing when they're taking all these vitamins, they're polluting the liver, which has to process the thyroid hormones. See what I'm saying? Oh. They're creating a thyroid problem. <laughs> so should I throw out all my vitamins? Throw them all out. And all the patients who do that, they come back to me going, thank you so much. I feel so much better. <laughs> So can I, and, and since reading your book, I've been drinking raw milk daily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have raw butter and uh, I put ghee on, I cook with ghee. I put ghee like lavishly on everything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So can I get enough? Can we get enough of that MK4 that, that yep. important from, from ghee? Oh yeah. See, we tend to think that, well, if a little's good for you, then maybe a lot more is better, but it's, it's not true. Our ancestors didn't have to take all these vitamins in the high doses that are un, so unnatural. No, we get enough in the food. Even though our food, it, it, we're not, we're dealing with um, soil that's not so um, rich in minerals and vitamins. That doesn't, that doesn't matter. It does to some extent with certain things, but um there are 5,000 nutrients in food. We can't pop all that as pills. Right. And really, um, if you have variety in your diet, so maybe this rice isn't so nourishing, but then if we eat some quinoa, that has more zinc, so that kind of saves us. And, and then maybe the cauliflower has this thing that the beets don't have, but then the beets have, you know, yeah. so you're going to get enough nutrients. Yeah. Got it. There's a part in your book, and I'll, I'll read it for a moment here, and it reminds me of a bit of a man named uh, Dr. Jack Cruz or Cruz, K-R-U-S-E. And he is all about mitochondrial hacking. He's all about photosynthesis. He's all about food that has been, you know, grown from sunlight, from that, that, that native EMF that our bodies need, that solar energy, which you talk about. And you talk about the timing, the length, and the frequency um, of menstrual cycles in your book that I just want to touch upon because I find it's really potent and it, and it kind of circles back to some of his work and just how the answers are in nature and um, going to bed by 10 o'clock and getting into that circadian rhythm. So I'm just going to read this for our listeners and love to have you comment on it. You say one other important thing, this is around the pineal gland and the hormones, the endocrine system. One other important point the timing, length, and frequency of menstrual cycles are influenced by melatonin. So it is important to follow the advice of the ancient seers of India to be asleep when the sun goes down and awake when the sun comes up. In the revolutionary and remarkable book, The Secret Life of Plants, researchers demonstrated how animals stop ovulating and become infertile when lights are shined on them at night to keep them awake effectively illustrating the powerful effects of daylight and darkness on our delicately balanced endocrine systems. And I might just add for you to comment, um, which I learned from Dr. Cruz, is that melatonin is actually absorbed through our retina in the morning a.m. sunlight. Right. And so people that take melatonin as a nutraceutical is like the worst thing they could take. The worst thing, yeah. <laughs> so I'd love for you to comment on that and just uh, the all this timing length and frequency and around nature. I have and- a, um, a video. It's, it's um, I had their, they're kind of queued up, ready to come out each week. So Great. I think in the next few weeks, there is a video on what happens when the sun hits the skin. 
because we always think of vitamin D gets produced, which it does. But the early morning sun, if you get out in that for a half hour in the morning, it does set the circadian rhythms. That's why the ancient doctor said, be awake either before or during as the sun rises. And um, if you sleep beyond that, like seven, eight, nine, you'll get more and more uh, lethargic as the day goes on, you know, because you're waking up in what's called the kapha time of day. So they mapped it out every four hours. There's certain things you should do. Like from six to 10 in the morning is a good time to exercise, get moving, not to be asleep. Just like um, past 10 o'clock at night, if you go to bed past 10, it'll weaken the whole endocrine system like that study showed and the thyroid gets weak. So there's certain things to do. It's called Dinacharya in Ayurveda, what to do during this particular time. But, but uh, melatonin, I, I always tell the patients because so many people take it for sleep. Don't take a hormone that your body already makes because if you do, your body's gonna shut down its production of it. It doesn't have to make it anymore. So we have to take all these people who took melatonin and try to wean them off of it and get their pineal gland to make it again. And sometimes it takes a year. So it's just not worth doing. Just like with the thyroid. If you were just diagnosed that your thyroid's weak, the last thing you wanna do is to take the hormone. But what you do wanna do is see why is it weak and figure out all those things and strengthen it. Because if you take the hormone, it's gonna weaken it more because it doesn't have to make the hormones anymore. So basically I felt so compelled to write this book because the whole premise of what they're doing with the thyroid is totally incorrect. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love for you to go into the bone marrow. You talk about the bone marrow and its relationship with immunity. And I think of the bone marrow just as sort of like the deepest part of our body. We've got the, like when we die, the last thing that you see is, is the skeleton, but what was inside the skeleton is the bone marrow and the bone marrow holds all those stem cells and important juice for our function, our functioning. So could you talk about the connection between the bone marrow and immunity and, and how we can clean the bone marrow? Well, see, we can use Hashimoto's as an example. Now there's two basic types of thyroid problems. One is where the thyroid itself is weak and we have to see why and stop doing those things. Uh, But the other is Hashimoto's where it's actually not a problem with the thyroid. It's a problem with your immune system. See, the immune system has intelligence and it knows to attack viruses, bacteria, um, but not like gluten and dairy or pollen. It's not supposed to do that. And the worst is it's not supposed to attack you, which is autoimmune. But as we go through life, different parts of the immune system can get derailed. And then if you derail all three parts, then you can enter this autoimmune state. So the three parts of the immune system are the friendly bacteria in the gut, the liver, and the bone marrow. So again, the friendly bacteria get depleted with all those medications I listed. Um, And so we have to fix that. Because once you destabilize the friendly bacteria, the immune system starts to go more autoimmune. Uh, And then when you regrow it, a lot of the food allergies go away and then you could stabilize it back away from autoimmune. Now, the problem with the liver is that it overheats. Just think of the whole earth right now. We have global warming from all the industry and the air pollution. So a lot of these chemicals are heating in nature, which means pharmaceuticals, 
nutraceuticals like vitamins, uh, all these chemical skincare products. We've surrounded ourselves with 80,000 chemicals now in the air, the soil, the water, the milk, everything. So now everything that we take in that's toxic goes through the liver. The liver's the main filter of toxins. So as it filters them, it starts to take on too much heat and it starts to overheat. And then that heat creates lots of problems like food sensitivities, food allergies, and, and it pushes you also into autoimmune. The third part of the immune system is this very deep tissue, the bone marrow. So in the book, I talk about the fact that there's seven tissues in the body. And once the food comes out of the digestive tract, it goes, it spends three to five days in each tissue, nourishing it till it moves on to the next. So there's the blood plasma, the blood, the muscle, fat. And as you go, the, the, the these are deeper and deeper tissues. So muscle, fat, bone, then bone marrow, that's a very deep tissue, and then the reproductive fluids. So um, the bone marrow is very interesting to study, and that's where the stem cells to the bones are made, and also the stem cells for the immune system cells, the red blood cells, the white blood cells, the platelets. So you don't want any toxins reaching this very deep tissue that's hidden from view. But guess what? Lots of pharmaceuticals make their way. They make a beeline into the bone marrow, like a flu shot. And just so you know, I'm not anti-vax, but I have to tell the truth. So if you get a flu shot or any vaccine, immediately the chemicals go into the bone marrow. And uh, also lots of other pharmaceuticals. Some names I won't name. There's an ac acne medicine. I don't want to say the name of it. But um, a lot of these medicines do, in fact, make their way in the bone marrow, just like air pollution and pesticides can too. So most of us are harboring quite a few toxins in the bone marrow, which you can feel in the pulse. Wow. Now that you have all three uh, activated, now the immune system starts to get reactive and it attacks, in the case of Hashimoto's, it's attacking the thyroid. So what we have to do in that case is fix the three parts, strengthen the thyroid, and, and then watch it go away. See what I'm saying? But the way it's treated in America, the immune system's attacking the thyroid. Thyroid can't work that well. The hormones go low. And what do they do? They put you on the hormones. Right. See the mistake they're making there. It's another reason I felt compelled to write the book. I've asked seven-year-olds in my practice, if your immune system was attacking your thyroid and you can't make hormones, what would you do? And they said, fix the immune system. And I said, wow, you didn't even go to school. So can you imagine going to school all those years and not thinking that needs to be done? You know, it's so. crazy. Yeah. Well, just dealing with those three aspects of immunity, the friendly bacteria, the liver and the bone marrow. <clears throat> I have a couple questions and you talk about this in your book that um, there's really only one brand and you don't get a kickback from it. It's just you in your your um, good goodwill trying to help people get better. Uh, you discovered that a lot of these pro or prebiotics, they're dead, they're inactive, they don't do anything. And most people think that they're taking good, friendly bacteria to help their gut and it's, you know, it's trash. So I'd love for you to comment on that. And the second question I have just out of curiosity uh, and so kind of circling back to something you said earlier around the fact that most of us have taken antibiotics at least once in our life. And I think, well, 
I've been, I've heard that it takes at least three months for the friendly bacteria to repopulate in a gut after one round of antibiotics. I'd love for you to comment on that and tell me what you know about that as well. That could be true. All I know is in my 35 years of practice, uh, every single patient with the exception of a few kids, maybe who were never vaccinated because vaccines wipe out the friendly bacteria as well. Um, most everyone's friendly bacteria is totally wiped out. But so in the early years, I was trying to treat like overgrowth of yeast, candida albicans. That's a signal that your friendly bacteria are missing when that starts to overgrow. So um, in the early, the first eight years of my practice, I did what everyone else did at the time. They would give you med like herbal things to kill the yeast, like um, Paldarco tea, garlic, caprylic acid, uh, things like that, grapefruit seed extract, they're all known to kill yeast. And, and then at the same time, they said, starve the yeast to death by avoiding foods which um, make yeast grow, which is basically all foods. So we did, we starved our patients to death as they tried to kill their yeast. And we gave them these things, it, nothing worked. And it, eight years later, I was still frustrated, but I was very fortunate in that I attended a seminar where someone came from Europe with a very expensive microscope. He was able to take a drop of blood and you could see the yeast. It looks like this when it swims. Mm -hmm. Every single person had yeast. And uh, then they would take a probiotic and they take a drop of their blood and you could see it swimming, meaning that the probiotic did nothing. So we spent two days going through all the probiotic cultures and watching the yeast happily swim. And then he took this, this one remedy. And I remember going, oh my God, you could see the yeast was being devoured. There's a big explosion going on in the gut. Uh, and then they told us that um, when they contacted the company, they said that this probiotic, it's very hard to make a probiotic. It starts out with live cultures. So they might put that on the label like 10 billion or so many live cultures, but as they process it, they kill the cultures because it's very hard to keep them alive during the processing. But this company figured out how to do it. And they, they said, unless it says 100% potency guaranteed, on the label, then you don't really know what you're getting. So that was about 25 years ago. I since then started to use that probiotic and all the yeast died off. I didn't have to use all those yeast killers. They didn't have to follow those diets to kill off the yeast and to starve the yeast. So now it's pretty easy to get rid of it. And now there could be some other companies since then that have come up with some probiotics that work, but the only way you would know is if you looked at it under a microscope like that. So I just stick with this one company because I know it works. And that company is called what again? Progen? Uh, uh, Natren, N-A-T-R-E-N. N-A-T-R-E. -E. Yeah, they have two names and I told them they shouldn't do that. It's confusing. The, okay. the other name is Protren. So okay. um, yeah, okay. yeah. That's what I was saying. Yeah. Okay, great. It's confusing. You know, with the increase in ADHD, ADD, autism, of course, one in 13 children, uh, last I checked, people say one in 30 boys. What's the difference? In my day, in, when I was a kid, it was one in 10,000. So <laughs> if, even if they said one in 100, I'd say, uh, is anyone paying attention? And I, I know some people are. Do you, do you see, and, and I would add to that, that um, there were studies that 
all these children that uh, died for one reason or another, maybe from encephalopathy or anaphylaxis or what have you that had autism, when they opened their brains and then when they uh, did um, studies, I guess, on their blood or what have you, they found that they all had mitochondrial dysfunction. Is, can you go into mitochondrial dysfunction and is that a sort of precursor to all autoimmune disease, ADHD, autism, the whole gamut? I would say mitochondrial dysfunction is uh, another victim. The mitochondria is a victim of all these things that we're doing that are creating autoimmune and, and autism. In other words, uh, when, when my teacher first came from India, I knew what, I was so fortunate. He was one of the best Ayurvedic practitioners there. That's why they sent him here to come and help make formulas for the first Ayurvedic herbal company that we had in America. So when the company set him out to train me, because I was using Ayurveda more than any doctor in the country at the time, because even now there's not that many Ayurvedic doctors, but in the early 1980s, there were hardly any. And, and yet I was using a lot of it. So they sent him out to train me. And I knew that I had a great herbal formulator. He could make formulas for anything. And that um, he was also a great pulse diagnostician. So I said to him, the first thing we want to tackle is autism because no one in America knows what's causing it. There's a lot of controversy about it. I didn't say anything to him. I wanted to see what he thought. I had already been testing the kids because I know how to test for heavy metals and all that. But I wanted to see what he found. So I brought in all the autistic kids, all the kids with ADHD and Asperger's and everything else, PDD, NOS, and he would feel their pulse. So he felt their pulses. And that night when he went home, he called me and I felt so guilty I had done that. He was very depressed. Hmm. And he said, my God, he said, the amount of toxins these kids have in their brain would have normally taken 70 years. Like oh. an old person has that. He said, like, he, he had just come from a, a, um, he literally just got off the boat when he started training me. So he came from a village in India where the mother's at home cooking, the father's working, there's no air pollution. They had not even electricity, no pollutants and, and uh, fresh yogurt made every day and whole grain flatbreads. And, and he comes here and we're injecting our babies with chemicals that have heavy metals that pass the blood brain barrier and drag the, the heavy metals into the brain and he had never seen anything like that. And he was in total shock. And, and it took me a minute or two to kind of settle him down. But then he would come back repeatedly for several years, feeling their pulses and making formulas. But I could tell you what he found. And again, I'm not anti-vax, um, <clears throat> but he found that the heavy metals, you know, see your immune system won't react to the vaccines. Like in other words, these vaccines have, um, they're dead viruses. So your immune system's not gonna react to that. So they have to put in it what's called an adjuvant to push your immune system to react. The adjuvant back then when he came was mercury. Now mercury is a deadly neurotoxin. So eventually in 2006, they came to their senses and said, yeah, why are we injecting our kids with mercury? Uh, because when I was young, we had two shots, so we were able to get away with it. And then by the 1970s, there were about 10 shots. But what happened, uh, when I was first learning Ayurveda, I was told 
you will never see a case of autism in your practice in your whole lifetime. And I had heard of it, but I had never seen it because it was so rare when I was young. Then in the 1970s, got a little more prevalent as the shots went up. But after 1989, that's when they started streaming in my office. So then we have to look back and all the researchers are saying, I wonder what happened in 1989 to increase the autism. And now we know that in 1988, a, um, a law was passed that if you, your child is vaccine injured, you can't sue the vaccine company. Right. So they were like, yes. And then the next year they came out with 70 vaccines. Now think of this, I, I had one vaccine in my life when I was little smallpox. Uh, and then I think we had an oral polio vaccine, which I'm grateful for. When COVID came, I got scared when the Delta variant came because I saw some people I thought were very healthy die from it. So I went out, that was my second shot in my life and it burnt my nerves so bad. I got shingles and all this rash from one shot. And I remember telling my husband, I just got one shot. What if I had 70 of these? And what if I burnt my nerve tissue to the point where I can't even think anymore? But during that time, I felt like I was high on drugs and I thought, I can't really think. And this is someone who's very pure, you know. So, so my teacher said that what he could see in the pulse was that the chemicals um, were even able to drag the, the heavy metal, the mercury into the brain. See, mercury is very hot and piercing. It can pierce through anything and it goes straight to the bone marrow. That's why it creates a lot of autoimmune diseases by its effects on the bone marrow. Uh, so the, the mercury, and then they took it out and they put aluminum in, which didn't help at all because aluminum is another potent neurotoxin. But not only do they pierce the blood brain barrier, which isn't really that developed yet at that age, but there are certain chemicals that drag it across the blood brain barrier that are in the shots too. <laughs> so mm. so th there's so many problems with the shots. But anyway, again, I'm not anti-vax, but I just have to speak the truth about that. So he made all these formulas to pull the heavy metals, fix the gut, because one shot also destroys the friendly bacteria in the gut. We had to cool the heat in the liver. We had to pull the heavy metals out and it takes three years to pull them out. Um, and, and it goes on and on. All the work we had to do uh, with our vaccine injured kids, but luckily we were able to reverse autism in quite a few of them. And now that first wave, they're graduating high school and the mothers are contacting me saying how they're going to college now. But, but it, it, I would say that, was, that has been my most difficult thing I've ever had to treat because it's something that could easily be remedied if they would make less vaccines and space them out more because right. most of them are unnecessary. That's another topic. Uh, my kids beg me, don't write any books about vaccines because I get a lot of blowback when I talk about it. Right. And when Dr. Mishra and I lectured around the country on it, instead of people saying, oh, thank God someone's talking about it, we got a lot of blowback. Like that's never been researched. But the truth is, the more we look, there is a lot of research on it. So we don't quite know where the disconnect is because we can see if you just Google what are the neurotoxic effects of aluminum or mercury, there's so many articles it would take several months to read them. So, but it, it's just a shame that our children are victims of um, an overly aggressive vaccine schedule. I'll just yeah. put it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Uh, and I'm thinking just in allopathic medicine or even integrative medicine for that matter, how they test heavy metals 
is through uh, a blood test usually or a hair sample. But my argument is, and I heard someone, I forget the guy's name. He's, he's a doctor who healed his son of severe uh, vaccine injury, uh, who was just severely autistic. And he healed him back to health. Uh, and he ended up, I believe, like graduating Harvard and he's, he's yeah. doing great. And it was a process. But he mentions how in allopathic medicine, when they test these heavy metals, you might get a very low read on someone who has a lot of heavy metal toxicity because it's not in the blood. It's in not the in there. Brain. No. Yeah. And so then they go, Oh, he doesn't That's have right. any heavy metals. And it's like, well, how That's do you not know? True. Right. We could feel it in the pulse. That's why it's in the deep tissues. And it's not just in the brain because we could see where it went. It's in the bone marrow. And guess where else it is? It's sitting on the thyroid gland, preventing it from working. Wow. And in the fat cells, because these kinds of toxins go in the fat cells and the kidneys. <laughs> well, let's shift gears slightly and, and go into food a bit, uh, the role of diet. And, you know, there's so many food wars out there where people say, you know, you have to eat raw, or you have to eat cooked, you have to eat, uh, you can't eat dairy, you should eat dairy, but it should be raw dairy. Uh, don't eat red meat or just eat lamb. Can you touch upon any of these kind of touch points around food and especially around Hashimoto's, the thyroid, uh, anything that relates back to your book in healing the system around food? One food. of the things that we don't understand in this country is that there are these different elements in nature, which are also in our bodies. And I talk about this in the beginning of the book. The yeah. ancient doctors called them Vata, Pitta, and Katha. These are behind the scenes. You can't see them. And so because you can't see them, they're getting ignored. But what they're doing, they're actually controlling all the processes in our body. So Vata is the element of lightness, quickness, movement, dryness, coldness. Um, so while we want some movement, like we want movement of thought through the mind or we want movement of the digestive tract in a downward way or circulation of blood. We don't want too much movement, not so much movement where we OCD, see what I'm saying? So yeah. these, these elements have to be balanced. Uh, now, pitta is the element of fire and water. And this is what, when you take the food in, it actually cooks the food. So all the digestive organs, like the liver, the stomach, these are pitta organs. They're loaded with heat. So we want some heat, but not to the point where we get too much heat in the liver and it rises in the head and give you, gives you headaches or you get ulcers, see what I'm saying? And then there's kapha. Now kapha is the opposite of vada. Vada is kind of like quick and moving and um, kapha is very laid back, like a cow is a kapha animal, very laid back and slow uh, and happy and you know, uh, stable, sturdy, big. So we want that, we want some sturdiness and stability. We want to be grounded. We, we don't want to sit on a couch all day and not do anything either. That would be too much kapha. So in the book, I start out by saying that if there's too much vada, too much movement, and you're hyper multitasking and rushing, thinking too many thoughts, being on the phone all day, that's going to wear out your thyroid. And that's one of the big problems we see with the thyroid. It's the victim of all this quickness, see? Because the whole society in America is vada aggravated. So 
to balance each one of these, you have to know how to do it. And I talk about it in the book. It's not that hard, but so you have to look at the diets that we give people. I'll just put it this way, because to talk about the diet could take about an hour. Yeah. The, the diets are balancing for all three, vada, pitta, and kapha, but each person is individual. So for example, one of the best foods that we could ever eat is milk. And yet in this country, everyone discards it to the point where they actually say it's a poison and it causes autoimmune diseases and cancer. So we have to teach the patients why that's being said. The cows are fed the wrong things. They process the milk. We take it in the incorrect way. There's several reasons why the milk might turn into poison in our gut. But if we fix our digestion, get the good milk, take it in the correct way, it nourishes all those seven tissues that I just talked about. See, the food you eat today won't nourish all seven. It takes a month because it spends three to five days in each of the seven tissues. The only exception to that is milk. It nourishes all seven immediately. So it's seen as in Ayurveda as the best food. Now, having said that, this is just one example with milk, but we can extrapolate that to all the other foods. In this day and age, so many of us have taken these medicines that damage our digestive tract, like uh, immunizations, antibiotics, birth control pills, acid reflux medicines, and steroids. These really devastate the whole digestive tract, the friendly bacteria in the gut, the liver. So when you damage those two parts, these are critical parts of the digestive system. When the the milk comes in, you can't digest it because it's already a little hard to digest. So your digestion has to be perfect. That's why so many people are lactose intolerant. So -hmm. then in general, then we would say milk is good, but then we have to take this particular person. If they can't tolerate it, then we have to fix their digestion so they can tolerate it. So the point is we have basic diets that we give everyone and then we have to tailor it to each person. So there isn't really any diet. It depends on how your digestion is right now. Uh, But in general, I can say we're making a lot of mistakes with the diet too. This idea of raw foods, raw foods don't digest well. They aggravate vada, cold foods, smoothies, making smoothies with kale. Kale depresses the thyroid gland, has goitrogens in it. If you cook the kale, the goitrogens evaporate out. But if you're juicing kale or eating kale salads, you're going to depress your thyroid. So we need to learn more about the food when it comes in. We don't know enough in this country. Yeah, that's for sure. And with milk, I guess this is more, again, individualized depending on the person's um, symptoms and, and whatever's going on in their character. But would it be warm milk or cold milk, or it doesn't matter. It's just individual. My teacher from India had a saying, and his saying was cold milk is like a poison to the body. See, that's how we drink it in America. Whereas warm milk is like a nectar. The reason is if you could see milk under a microscope, the molecules of fat, they're big globules. They can't absorb into the bloodstream. So they remain in the gut. They form a compound called ama. They clog that channel. All the other channels, like the sinuses, the throat, the lungs clog. That's why a lot of people say, when I drink milk, I get clogged up. Because they're drinking it cold. It's just clogging all these physical channels in the body. But if you were to cook it, you bring it to a boil. You cook it with some spices, like cardamom pods, which help you digest the protein in the milk. Cinnamon stick helps you digest the sugar in the milk. Uh, Then you're cooking it, and the fat melts down so you can absorb it, and it's not clogging, see? But again, each person has some different issues. Some people might have to have goat's milk. It depends on each person. 
Right. And then does it matter if it's raw milk or not raw? There's all these issues. There's A2 milk. That's the best. A2 raw. Uh, Then there's A1 raw. Raw is the the best. Uh, If it's non-homogenized, that means that the cream rises to the top. That's good too. Uh, Then the more you process it, it gets less and less good for you. And the cows have to be grass fed because when they eat grass, they make omega-3s. But when they eat grains, they make omega-6s. And 90% of the cows in this country eat grains. So that's why people are saying milk is a poison, but we're saying, yeah, but if we do it this way and we heat it and we cook it with spices and we drink it on an empty stomach, it nourishes all seven tissues in the body and it makes a compound called OGIS. And I have a big explanation on what OGIS is in the book, which will take some time to talk about. But OGIS is your hormones, see? So we can't say I have these hormonal problems and not look look at what is depleting your OGIS, see? That's why I said there's all these things. Once you sort them all out, it's easy. But I think initially learning them, it's a little mind boggling. But then you could see why so many people have problems with their endocrine system. Mm. I wanted to comment on the OGIS because when I read that, I found it really profound. And and I think it's uh, important just to share a little brief uh, bit here so people can hear. Um, And I'll just read from your book here on the OGIS, Neurotransmitters and Hormones. OGIS, that vital life force that governs hormonal balance, is considered to be the essence of the seven datus. Is that correct? That's those seven tissues I was talking about. Oh, the seven tissues. Yes, right. Blood plasma, blood, muscle, fat, bone, bone marrow, and reproductive fluids. Yes. As the final product of our reproductive fluids, it is also the first element of our body. As the Sharaka Samita notes, ojas is the first thing in the body to be developed since it is transmitted to the embryo along with semen and ovum during fertilization. It is like ghee in color, like honey in taste and like puffed rice in odor. Ojas gives strength to our physiology and bolsters our immunity to disease. I mean, wow, I had no idea. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, to kind of go back for a moment on the food, I found another point you made really interesting and eye-opening, at least to me, around these substances or these herbs that we would generally say are great, like turmeric. But you mentioned how turmeric, if it's not used properly or if it's used alone for some people, it can be, I guess, too heating or caustic to the liver. Can you talk about that? My teacher also had a saying about torturing the liver. He was a big fan of not torturing it. Uh, See, everything we swallow, the liver has to process. So turmeric, he called it the best friend to the liver because it helps the liver to detox. So again, in this country, we make that mistake where we say, well, then if a little's good, and there's all this research showing turmeric's anti-inflammatory and all these things, uh, then why don't we take capsules of it? Now, when you do it that way, all that turmeric going into the liver, it's gonna heat it up because turmeric's a hot spice. So one of the first things you learn when you learn the herbs in Ayurveda, are they cooling, are they heating? So turmeric's very heating. So you, and it needs a vehicle of fat. So you could boil it in milk and make like golden milk and let it simmer in the fat in the milk and the fat delivers it into the cells. You could melt ghee and cook it in ghee or if you were making, you know, like a chicken soup, put it in the broth or oatmeal with milk. 
but you always want to cook it into a fat to deliver it. And even worse than taking turmeric would be taking curcumin, where they're isolating the, um, the active ingredients. See, we're doing that again. We make that mistake again. And my teacher said, if you do that, then you're really looking for trouble. And a lot of our patients are doing it. Luckily, I take them off when I see them do that. But these are the mistakes that we're making in this country because we don't have this tradition of holistic medicine like they do in Ayurveda. Wow. I am not taking curcumin ever again. No, don't take it. <laughs> <laughs> but I will be putting turmeric in my milk because it's the fatty milk that when I heat it, I can digest it. That's right. Okay. That's great to note. Thank you. And the um, milk and the ghee are cooling. They cool down the turmeric. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Well, a few more questions here. This is so informative. Um, I have a question around the herbs like ashwagandha, shilajit, which you talk about in your book. Are those generally good for everybody or are they kind of in no. the realm? No, they're because no, they're not. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the thing. So when my teacher came to America, the, the at, when he saw what happened to the kids, he was upset. But the other thing he saw was that just about everyone had too much heat in the liver yeah. from the bad foods we ate growing up and the overuse of pharmaceuticals in general. See, in, in other countries, they don't take birth control pills. They don't take antibiotics, you know, several times in, in their childhood like we do. They don't get 70 shots. They get some shots, but not 70. So we're really over-medicated here. We're just used to it. So that combination of the faulty diet with all the processed foods and the pharmaceuticals, it's too much heat for the liver to, to handle, too many chemical toxins going through it. So now you have to know, again, which herbs are cooling, which are heating. So when Dr. Mishra started feeling everyone's pulse, it only took him a day or two. He turned to me and this is what he said. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, everyone's liver is just outrageously hot here in this country. I've never seen this but we have to figure out what to do because the herbs are going to heat it. And some herbs are hotter than others. The most hot ones of all are ashwagandha and shilajit, which by the way, are the best herbs for the thyroid gland. That's why they recommend it so much in Ayurveda. So he said, let me figure out what to do, but it took him four years to figure it out. He said, so there's two things we could do. One is he learned how to take just the, the pranic energy or the, the memory of what that herb does and make little drops that you put in water, kind of like a Bach flower remedy. So it's just the vibration of that herb and it goes into the cellular system and the liver doesn't have to process it. See, if your li liver is outrageously hot and you swallow ashwagandha, it's gonna go crazy because it's such a hot herb that tortures the liver. Uh, so, so what he did, he made these little drops of ashwagandha or shilajit that was one thing he made. The other thing he made were what are called transdermal creams, where you take just a little bit of it and you rub it on the skin. And from the skin, it goes directly in the blood and you're gonna bypass the liver. It's only when you swallow it where it's gonna go through the liver. So, so we end up giving ashwagandha in those forms. We rarely give it. I don't think I have ever given it orally or in a powder because of its heating effect. In fact, just today I had someone who was taking it and she said she had to stop it because another practitioner told her to take it. So, but especially for Hashimoto's where the liver's hot and is pushing you into autoimmune, you definitely don't want to take shilajit and ashwagandha because it's going to heat the liver more and push you into more autoimmune, see? So my teacher had to 
to do what the ancient doctors said. They said, we can't foresee what will happen in the future, but we will leave it up to the new doctors of Ayurveda to write new chapters because we don't know what's gonna happen. And what has happened are these 80,000 chemicals and pharmaceuticals that have disrupted our gut, our liver, our bone marrow. So he's the first one who came from India and he stayed here and he got to see uh, exactly what was happening in the Western world with all the chemicals. And he had to revamp Ayurveda to some extent, always, you know, using the ancient textbooks as, you know, his, um, you know, for his formulas, but he still had to change the way we give the herbs, change the cleansing techniques uh, and change a few things like that. So. Is there some other things we, you mentioned clay packs, things that can, ex, would that extract the heat from the liver? Yeah, he, he made all kinds of things to pull the heat out. We put the glycerized uh, licorice cream on the liver, clay packs he made. Uh, there's certain herbs, bumi, amla, mankand. Uh, these are cooling to the liver. Gaduchi sattva I talk about in the book. Yes. So yeah, so we end up using more of those cooling liver herbs to heal the liver as opposed to like uh, my teacher really did not like milk thistle because that might have some benefit in the liver, but it heats it. And he, again, he would always say it tortures the liver you know? Fascinating. Yeah. And uh, you talk about Trifala in your book. I've been taking Trifala. Is that a good thing to take for everyone? Or is that heating? Everybody's different. You know, some right. people, it makes them go too much. Some people, it constipates them and some it's just right. Uh, but we use it a lot because I found that connection. When the thyroid's weak, the gallbladder's automatically weak. And the gallbladder, if it doesn't secrete its bile every day, the bile could start to get thick. So I have a whole chapter on what happens when you develop bile sludge. And it's a very interesting chapter. But triphala is one of many things we have to keep the bile flowing. But it's not something you always need to take. Once you thin out your bile, you could stop it. And then you could start it up again if it gets too thick. Once you're in tune with what it feels like when the bile's thick, you'll know when to start on the triphala. But again, some people can't tolerate triphala. So there isn't really any one remedy or any one food that we can say, yeah, everyone needs this. So triphala is good, but some people can't take it, put it mm. that way. Yeah. And I'd love for you to comment, if you could, Marianne, on soy, because I find soy to be just a poison for me. I mean, I can't, I'm allergic to soy. If I have soy... I feel like I've been poisoned right, right off the bat. And, um, and you mentioned soy and you mentioned glutathione in your book. And I'm just kind of making this connection here before you delve in, which I noticed in my kitchen uh, cupboard where I, we have all our vitamins and whatnot. Well, everybody talks about liposomal, liposomal glutathione, you know, gets in the cell, yada, yada, yada. Well, great. But what is in there is soy phospholipids they're all like made from soy uh yeah i wouldn't do that yeah and yeah. Uh, and then i looked at another glutathione that was in capsules and it contains soy and we go okay well glutathione is the most important antioxidant but if that's going to stagnate the blood or the pulse or you can talk more about this then uh we're, we're not we're clogging the the gears here we're not doing ourselves yeah, favors true, yeah well, soy has lots of issues. One is it's highly estrogenic. So it could cause growths if you have too much estrogen. What we see with our thyroid patients, they lose the ratio 
between estrogen and progesterone, where the estrogen's already high, the progesterone's low. So you have to, in all those patients, we have to recalibrate that ratio. So you don't want to be eating something that has a lot of estrogen, like soy. Plus, soy has isoflavones in it, which depress the thyroid gland. So you definitely don't want that. Uh, and then uh, unfermented soy, like tofu, edamame, and soy milk, have um, hemagglutinin in it. Hema is the blood. Glutenin, it means it makes it thick. So it's very channel clogging. Like the blood is one type of channel, the vessels. There's lots of channels in the body. There's channels that carry lymphatic fluids, blood, tears, sweat. Um, so once you swallow the food, it enters this whole network of channels until it comes out the other end as bowel movement, urine, and sweat through these channels. So when you eat a lot of soy, all the channels get clogged. And my teacher would feel that quite often in a person's pulse. So he had a nickname for it. He called it a tofu pulse whenever he saw extreme clogging in the pulse. And he would ask the patient, are you eating a lot of soy or drinking a lot of soy milk or eating tofu? And they would say, yeah. So he told them to stop doing that. I remember before I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I was 20, I was diagnosed 25 and I had a goiter at 25 and, and I was living in New York city. I was diagnosed when I moved to Los Angeles, uh, but I was living in New York city and I was so chronically fatigued. I can't even tell you, I would do like triple, um, uh, espressos at like 4 PM just to try to keep myself up. <laughs> and uh, it, did, and it didn't do anything. Like yeah. it literally didn't give me rapid heart rate or anything. Now, if I took it, I'd be, I'd yeah. be like, forget, I don't even drink coffee, but, but, uh, I remember I would go to the health food store and it was like, I didn't even have the awareness of my own awareness that I would go and buy like a, I would get, get hajiki seaweed and I would go home and I kid you not, I would cook a lobster pot full of hajiki and I would eat that as a meal. And I didn't even know why I was craving seaweed, what was going on. And who knows if I was making this undiagnosed thing that wasn't even discovered yet in my body, why I was so tired, making it worse. Um, my question is, Seaweed, iodine, Hashimoto's, does seaweed, I mean, seaweed is, pulls out heavy metals. Seaweed has a lot of benefits, as many people may know, but does it aggravate Hashimoto's? I would say the iodine would, because there's no intelligence in that. Someone makes the iodine in a lab. The seaweed would be a better way to get it, but there is a lot of iodine in it, so you have to be careful that you just have it like maybe so many days a week, maybe a little capsule or cook with it a little bit because there's so much iodine. So with everything, we don't want too much of it. It'll start to affect it in a negative way, but it's not like, I would say that iodine could aggravate Hashimoto's or if you kept eating that amount of seaweed, you would definitely throw your thyroid gland. It would overwhelm your thyroid, but that's not what's causing it in the first place. See right. what I'm saying? It has to have been something affected your immune system, the gut, the liver, and the bone marrow in order to, to make it want to attack your thyroid. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, you've covered so much here. Is there anything else that you'd love to share and leave the audience 
for those that have Hashimoto's, have thyroid issues, have autoimmunity, and those that know many loved ones that are suffering from this very unfortunately popular <laughs> uh, condition. You know, the good news is this, it's so easy to fix all this stuff. It's just that we're immersed in a culture that doesn't know how to fix really any of the diseases. From everything I could see, the way they're treating it is incorrect. Like eczema, they're acting like it's a skin condition. It's not, it's a problem with toxins in the bone marrow coming through the skin or, or diabetes. They give a medicine to lower it, uh, which damages the liver. It's called metformin. When the reason you have the diabetes is because the liver is not working well. So almost every disease, once you start to examine it, you can see that we're treating it incorrectly. And as, especially, that's why I'm making all these videos. If you look on my website, you'll see I'm talking about all the diseases and what we're doing wrong and the way it should be done. But the reason, and I plan on writing books about all these diseases, but I started with the thyroid because it's very easy to understand what's happening to it. When you read the book, you can totally get it. And it's, it's fairly easy to fix. And, and again, people don't need to suffer. It's just that the doctors are not looking at the underlying causes. They're just giving thyroid hormones. That's all they give, whether it's Hashimoto's, whatever, you know, if it's hypothyroid, they're just giving the hormones and watching the blood work, which it'll be good in the blood work because you're taking the hormones, but it doesn't mean you fixed anything. So once you start to fix the thyroid and it perks back up, um, then your whole body's healthy. So, so I would say just uh, the good news is that this is fairly easy to fix and there's a way out for you. <laughs> so don't keep suffering. Yes. Amen to that. And get your book, Healing the Thyroid with Ayurveda, Natural Treatments for Hashimoto's, Hypothyroidism, and Hyperthyroidism. Marianne, this has been an amazing book for me, and I've been recommending this to so many of my friends, so many women I know that have thyroid issues. It's just astonishing. It is. <laughs> and, um, epidemic. Yeah, it really is. And it's uh, unfortunate, but I, I'm hopeful that this will help them like it's helped me. And I'm so grateful for all this insight. And uh, all your information will be in the show notes, guys. And uh, thank you so much for your wisdom and your time, your expertise and your heart in helping humanity. Oh, thanks for having me. Hey, guys, thanks for checking out the Spiritual Geek Out podcast. If you like what you're hearing here, check out more by subscribing on your favorite platform or go to spiritualgeekout.com.